1: the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell. I am without any of my usual co-hosts today because instead I'm joined by an old friend to talk all things Bundesliga. It's Manuel Fate of Transfermarkt and the Pressing Podcast. Manuel, great to talk to you again.
2: Oh man, it's so good to be back. And uh, first of all, Happy New Year. Happy New Year to all the listeners. And yeah, I'm looking forward to this one. I think it's been too long and I'm excited to chat anything Bundesliga with you today.
1: Yeah, man. Uh, it has been too long. It's, I'm excited to have you back. We've had a a strange season. Not an unexpected mm. season. Bayern Munich, uh, top of the table, as always. But there have been some surprising results, surprising, surprising firings, surprising signings, lots and lots of things that we will get to today. But I want to start, since it's been a while since last we spoke... Uh we we had initially I initially planned to have you on in the winter break. Our schedule mm. did not allow for that. My schedule did not allow for that, so here we are. But Manuel, my question for you to begin is, is there a favorite story of yours so far this season? Not necessarily like the happiest story or the most feel-good story, but just a topic that you think has been particularly interesting for whatever reason uh so far this campaign?
2: Wow, a favorite story for this mm-hmm. campaign. I think the and this goes really back to last summer. The seeing the coaching carousel work mm-hmm. out,
1: yeah, I thought that's been really interesting. <laughs> Let's talk about that. Let's talk about that coaching carousel for a minute, because, uh, yeah, I, th- I thought Jesse Marsh was going to be mm. a great, a great signing, and here we are. Him no longer in charge. Marco Rosa, I thought would just hit the ground running, and Dortmund would look electric and. That has not quite been the case. The less said about Gladbach the better. Uh what what has been most surprising to you about that coaching carousel so far?
2: Yeah, I think Jesse Marsh not working out. I, I was a bit surprised by that. I think I still think he's a great coach. Um a great person, by the way, as well. I really like him. And I think that was he was the right person at the right club at the wrong time mm-hmm. in some ways. Um so, I'm sure we'll talk about that in greater detail. And then, um, I think Oliver Glasner, mm-hmm. the way he's worked out at Frankfurt, they look like they won that carousel. Mm-hmm. If you can win a carousel, um, <laughs> <laughs> sure. if there would be a race within that carousel, I guess they would win it. Um, I think they look, they look like they have done everything right mm-hmm. in, in this summer. And and it, it wasn't really by their own doing because they first lost Freddie Bobic to Hertha and then they lost um, Adi Hütter to Gladbach, right? And um, I understand Bobic's decision in a lot of ways. I think he felt that his, his work was done in Frankfurt and I, I guess he's proven right. Uh, in that sense, Um Adi Hütters was a little bit more controversial, right? Because um it seemed like at best a parallel move. And mm-hmm. now it looks like a m- downward move in some ways because Frankfurt looked like in a way better position than, than Gladbach do. And Glasner has really done an excellent job to compensate not only the players that they lost, but also in, some, in somewhat actually improving on the playing style that was already there and... I think that makes it a really intriguing story. They play really good football and they would have probably deserved the win against Dortmund on the weekend, right? And they are on the, they have been on for a while knocking on, on the door to get to the Champions League. And, um, we've both been to Frankfurt, right? And been to, been to a game there. And, um, the atmosphere there is incredible when, when, when attendance is in the stadium, probably the best in Germany, actually, in my opinion. And that club would just do fantastically well once they get to the Champions League because I feel like that's the next that would that would catapult them to become a consistent top four team in in the Bundesliga where they should probably be considering the size of the city, the financial power of the city and um the impact that the club has in terms of, of fan base, etc. Right. So I think Glasner has done an excellent job. And I feel like they they are my tip of all these teams that are currently sniffing around the Champions League but I think there's seven. Um to actually make it and actually be a longer lasting sort of club that could that could actually establish themselves there and actually maybe become the third or fourth biggest team in Germany um, as a result.
1: Let's stick with Frankfurt then for a moment. Uh, they started the season in a rough spot. Even some speculation that maybe Oliver Glasner would, would be sacked or wouldn't be around for the whole season. They're not mm-hmm. out of the cup. They win just one of their first 10. Now they're playing very well. I agree with you. I think... It was harsh. They don't end up winning. Credit to Dortmund for the fight back. But uh, Eintracht Frankfurt looked all over them and looked comprehensively the better side, at least in that first half. How have they been able to turn it around? Was there a sort of turning point for this season or a particular player who has caught fire? And what do they need, do you think, to do either in the January window or beyond to be able to challenge for the top four or potentially even finish in the top four and qualify for the Champions League?
2: Yeah, I think what, I mean, in, in some ways, a lot of their business was done later, right? And, um, so they needed to find some time to gel uh, and get some pieces working. I think a couple of players were also maybe disappointed that they didn't get the move that they thought they would be getting. Uh, uh Philip Kostic, for example, or Daishi Kamada, um, who now have looked really good. Mm. I think if you are a center forward and you're playing with Philip Kostic, <laughs> that must be just a dream to be, in the middle of the box, knowing that every delivery is just going to be perfect. Yeah. Look at, <laughs> I mean, there isn't many players like that. And I think for Philip Kostic, there was a big disappointment because that was probably his last opportunity for a big move. And, um, it didn't materialize for various reasons. Most of them, the fact that doing COVID clubs are just not willing to pay a lot of money. Right. So I, I think he was a little bit. Uh, in his head, disappointed about it. But he's been excellent in the second half of the first half of the season. And, um, you know, Raphael Borre took some time to get used to the Bundesliga He scored twice against Dortmund. I I think a lot of clubs around the world wanted him as a free agent signing from River Plate, right? And Frankfurt got him to replace Andre Silva. And they were totally different players. And so I think the rest of the squad needed to maybe adjust a little bit for him to be there um, because he's not that tall presence that andre silva is right he's a bit more of a compact forward i'm um, still really much a box forward but a little bit more compact and i think that's just a different type of player that you have to deal with but yeah i think that just took some time to gel and um now with costage being with the reality setting in for costage that frankfurt is his home and for some of these other players to finally you know getting adapted to their surroundings i think they don't really need to do that much in in the in the winter transfer window, I think maybe one thing, and this is, seems to be closely to very, there, there seems to be a resolution coming is with what's going to happen with Armin Yunus, right? Um, who has been a constant pain. Uh, although he had had a great first half of the year uh, with the club. Um, but he's been, he's been trying to strike his way out of the club and there seems to be some sort of resolution for him. Um, and then maybe it will be interesting to see if they can better integrate the ends Peter Hauge into that squad as well. I think. But this is another guy that a lot of teams around the world wanted, and um, it's going to be a very good addition for them, you know, once he gets used to it. And yeah, I think they they don't need to do much. I think they just need to sort of do their homework and keep working and maybe not give away two, two, two goal leads. <laughs>
1: That that would be ideal. Certainly, a, a good starting point. I don't know much about, uh, I mean, Yunus aside from what his Wikipedia page, which I now have open, tells me. What's the what's the drama there? What's the story there? Why do they need to move him on, or why does he want to move on?
2: Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one because you know, I, I it's really it's really kind of too bad because Amin Yunus is quite a good talent and a national team player who's always. Uh, a little bit of an infant terrible, right? <laughs> um, was once considered one of the brightest talents in German football. Um, was, came to the Gladbach ranks. Yeah. Um, had some personal problems there. Um, moved on to Kaiserslautern on loan. Didn't quite work out there. Uh, Gladbach finally did sell him to Ajax, where he became a very important player. Part of that uh, Europa League run under um, Peter Bosch, um, where they lost to Manchester United in the final. And um, then went to Napoli. Had a so-so so-so time at Napoli, uh, good and bad. And um, yeah, and then then Frankfurt signed him on loan. And his loan is supposed to expire um, next summer. And initially, it looked like he's going to find a long-term home in Frankfurt. But then he had an offer, I think, from from Saudi Arabia, and that didn't go through. And then he he went on strike. And yeah, it's. Um, It's a good example of a player being very chumpy in his career and seeking the next paycheck, I guess. And that's really too bad because, you know, he's a guy that wasn't, wasn't in the vicinity of the German national team and certainly has the talent to be a German national team player, but very chumpy in his career. And um, at 28, it looks like whatever the resolution is going to be with his future, it's not going to be an upwards move. It's going to be at best a parallel move, probably more like a downward move, which is too bad. But, you know, for Frankfurt, for them, it will be the best to just find a resolution and move on in this sense because that will settle the squad.
1: Uh, A squad that is mostly settled already, as you've said, uh, currently Mm -hmm. in eighth place. But with the loss to Dortmund, they fall a little bit further back. Dortmund, meanwhile, closed the gap on Bayern Munich uh, to six points. So we have... Somewhat of a title race. I want to stick with Dortmund for a second because it it feels like it's a good season for Dortmund so far in that they are still within touching distance of Bayern Munich. But at the same time, like when we did the weekend review this weekend talking about that that game for Dortmund, it felt like Frankfurt were playing a sort of team-wide system and causing problems for Dortmund across the board. And when Dortmund were able to turn it around... It felt like it was because of individual performances, individual moments, and Frankfurt getting a little bit tired as the game went on. And so it still feels like this isn't necessarily a team that's functioning better than the sum of its parts. It feels like Marco Rosa still has his work cut out to get this team functioning the way they would need to to challenge for the title. Am I being overly harsh on Dortmund, or is that roughly the vibe that you have towards them as well? Yeah, that's,
2: that seems bang on, Okay, I think. I think the You sound so sad about it. <laughs> yeah, no, because I, I am really disappointed by them. And it, it, you're right, on paper, it's all good, at least in the Bundesliga. But I think...
1: Yeah, true. As
2: we've mentioned on gegenpressing, and Stefan pointed this out, right? Um, Stefan Biankowski, who I do the gegenpressing show with, uh, pointed this out. It's almost like they they get rescued by the, by the individual brilliance rather than their, their tactical cohesiveness. And... Yeah. That's great in the Bundesliga against maybe in certain times, in certain, um, against a site like Frankfurt, who is just below them, right? Who they should be beating, um, based on, on, on individual quality alone, because they have a ton of individual quality. You know, they, they're not far behind Bayern when it comes to individual quality. And so they should be beating these teams on, on a good day, but, they get themselves into situations where it's not where the, where their tactical problems create problems for them that, um, you know, they then need to solve by guys like Torgan Hazard coming off the bench mm-hmm. and putting in a one man show, or like yeah, Bellingham doing something brilliant, um, Erling Haaland. Um, doing something brilliant. Marco Reus, who's, in my opinion, been probably the best Borussia Dortmund player this year, has rescued them countless times, but it's not a unit that does it. It's a individual that just pops up and says, okay, puts up his sleeves and it's like, well, I guess we'll have, I'll have to rescue the team today. And that's, I think, um, where they get found out quite a bit. They got found out by Bayern. They got found out in, in the Champions League, right? Where they, where they, where the club, Fell to two teams that were coached better. And that's, that's the reality of things. I think Ken Hark is one of the best coaches in the game at the moment. Um, Amorim, who coaches Sporting, is a very interesting name and a name that has been linked, um, even to German teams at times this year. Um, was one of the guys that was possibly linked with Leipzig, right? To replace Jesse Marsh. And he's a brilliant coach, a brilliant young coach. And I think that who has a very bright future ahead of him. And he found out Rose as well. And I think that is something that where, where they stop, where Dortmund, um, that's where their problems are that there isn't whatever Rose wants to do with this club. It's not there yet. There's no, his fingerprints aren't there yet. And so it's not his tactics that are winning games. It's the players who are winning games. And that is, in my opinion, a huge problem.
1: What do you think Marco Rosa wants to do? What does it look like if his fingerprints are more on this team than it does right now?
2: Yeah, that's a very good question. I I would like to have the answer for that (laughs) as well. And because we don't know, I I can't see it yet. And we we have to go back to possibly his time at Salzburg, right? Where there was a very aggressive counter-pressing style of play where they played very attractive football. But, as we found out in the past, the transition from from Salzburg to the Bundesliga isn't always easy. At Gladbach, you saw it at the times in the first season, but we didn't see it much in the second season. And in particularly after he after he announced that he would be leaving Gladbach for Dortmund, right? He and Gladbach were in all sorts of trouble. So I'm not sure that with the squad that they have at the moment, they can even play his style of game. Remember at Gladbach, they had almost this, this three line forward system with four, the four, three, three. Mm -hmm. And, um, without a typical number nine, because Mbolo, Turam and, um, uh, player, player. they're not all typical number nines and they were almost playing like a very high press with, with flexible attacking players that could place also all sorts of uh, formations. Um, then he comes to Dortmund. And yes, he's worked with Erling Haaland in the past, right? But he comes to Dortmund and all of a sudden you have a number nine, a full-on number nine. And it seemed like at times um, in the first half of the season, the tactic was simply punt the ball up high, hope that Haaland does the rest, right? And then when Haaland went out injured, I actually thought they played some of the better football without him. And that sounds harsh. Um Don't get me wrong. I think Haaland is a brilliant player. But it was almost like the the the, the attacking line seemed to be more suited to what what Jose wants to do with these, you know, more flexible attacking players with an attack that is more variant, has more variance to it. And yeah, I I think that's maybe what we will see eventually from them um, if he gets the chance to actually implement it. It's like a more progressive attacking force three three with a flexible attacking line that sees uh, players moving throughout different positions um, and is defensively, and this is the most important part, is just a bit more sound. And I think to be able to achieve that, they will have to make some changes to the squad.
1: Could one of those changes be uh, selling Erling Haaland? I know that there's the buyout clause. Mm-hmm. I know that he's very likely to move. But if we're saying that this is a Dortmund team that are maybe overly reliant on individuals, I would assume Erling Haaland would be one of those individuals that he might not fit the system or not, might not be a flexible enough option. Is there a world in which from Marco Rosa selling Erling Haaland and then reinvesting that in two or three very good players is sort of what's needed to move Dortmund on?
2: It's a very, it's a predicament, isn't it?
1: It really because, is, because that feels odd to say about a player who is as yeah. freakishly good as Erling Holland.
2: Yeah, it is a, I mean, it is, it is a difficult one because he will make you better mm-hmm. without a doubt. And, um, I can't remember. I, I've been trying to find the statistic, but there was some crazy number that floated around earlier in this season that Dortmund actually, without Haaland, scored more goals than with him, even though he, on average, produced more points for them. Um, I, I couldn't find it again. So if someone can find it and see it, it'd be great to point it out to me. But that's, that's like the sort of thing that you find and see, right? I think if Haaland moves on, and I know Dortmund are working very hard to sign him to a new contract. And I know COVID makes it very difficult for, for various clubs, um, to buy him, although. I think, um, when what you hear from behind the scenes his he seems to have his future more or less figured out and Real Madrid keeps is is the club that's being that I'm being pointed towards. Um, whether that's coming to fruition or not, we'll see. Right. But that's the club that is being pointed out to me that they're going to sign uh, Mbappe and Haaland and uh, shock the football world, that sort of thing. Um, so if they lose him. And the exit clause is somewhere between 70 and 90 million euros, depending on who is going to sign them, which I find interesting because it's, it's everyone assumes it's a set exit clause, but apparently it depends on who actually does the, does the transfer. Um, that money, you know, some of that money is earmarked for Adeyemi, who's coming from Salzburg. And I hope that a lot of that money is earmarked for a Defender because Mats Hummels has been a train wreck for them. Um, And so has Amber Shan, who is just not a center-back. I thought he could be a solution at center-back. He's not. And just to bring a bit more stability. And then, of course, uh, Donil Mahan is very much a transfer that they had in mind for already next year. So he's getting integrated into the system. So all of a sudden, you have Marlin, uh Mahan, Yusufo, Yusufo Mukuku, who is still coming up there, the squad right, and Adiimi, And that's his three flexible attackers right there.
1: Where does right. Gio Reyna fit into that? Assuming he is one day healthy and able to play again,
2: yeah, that's a good question, right? Because he is never healthy, and this is um, concern. yeah, it is a concern. I think that that's something that something that also his father had problems with, right? Yep. And um, unfortunately, these things are genetic. You have you have guys out there who just never get hurt. Look at Thomas Müller, um, guy was just unbreakable. It seems. Um, and so that determines whether your career or not is going to be a huge success or just a success. And, uh, I, I think getting him fit and getting him, giving him his body, the stability needs to be a successful long-term player at this level is going to be a huge task for both Gio Reiner, but also Borussia Dortmund. And, um, yeah, it's been, I mean, he's very important for them when he's fit. There is no doubt about it because it gives them an attacking flexibility that, um, you know, adds a nuance to their game that you can't find otherwise. There is no other player like that in the system, right? Marco, Marco Reus and Torgen Hazard. Torgen Hazard is a very direct attacking midfielder. Marco Reus is in some ways, um, a little bit more of an inverted attacker right rather than a number 10 and giorena is that number 10 and so he gives them that extra little bit that they need so yeah i think for them um it's very important to get him fit and i think for you know in the long term getting him fit and getting him integrated into the system and um is, is of utmost importance because for that four-three-three 3 3 to work, remember Lars Stindl was a very important part of the Gladbach system, right behind these two flexible attackers at times. And that's that's where I would see Geo play play um, for Dortmund. Looking for an
0: assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. courtside seats to an NBA game,
1: and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. So it seems like Reyna is in the plans, provided he's healthy. We're not sure right. about Erling Haaland. They're trying to renew him, but it also feels like he may end up moving this summer. Very unlikely he moves in January, but maybe this summer. No, that's not There we go.
2: Not January. Um, big names like that don't move in January. I think there is talk scheduled for um, during this month between Dortmund and Haaland to determine his future next summer. And so we'll probably find out sooner rather than later what direction he's going to go.
1: And As you said, it's it's a fluctuating buyout clause. I'm assuming it would be uh, less expensive if Real Madrid tried to sign him versus, say, Bayern Munich, a club that I still Mm. feel like might be in for him in the end. If you're ranking his most likely destinations, it feels like Madrid is one. I know Barcelona tends to be in that conversation. I still don't know how that would work for them financially, but I feel like it's Bayern Munich as two if we're talking about his most likely destinations and maybe Dortmund is third.
2: I personally would hate that move. Yeah, I think. Um, uh, I don't think it would be good for the league. It would not be good for the Bundesliga's name. Uh, I I would understand why Bayern would do it. I think there's two sides to the story is that Bayern Munich cannot do not care what other people think about them, or what is good for the league or what is um what the reputation, what it does to the reputation that is not to their concern. They are playing a different competition with the rest of the world right they see them they they are maybe at the moment together with Real Madrid, the biggest club in the world and um so for them that's where they see themselves competitively. And mm. they have to do everything in their power to stay there because they can't just go and uh, call some guy in Abu Dhabi and get more money. That's not how this works. So if they can sign someone like Erling Haaland um to a package deal like this, um they will do it. If it's fina- if it's financially possible, they will do it. Um that's I think the more important question. When you hear about Oliver Khan and Hassan Salih Hassan Salih Hamich will be all over it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think the the, the guy that's, that's more careful about this uh, is Oliver Kahn. Um, he's very much in charge of the finances now, right? The CEO of Bayern Munich and um, very guarded when it comes to future investment. And I think when you talk to Hassan, they will do everything in the power to do it. And if you talk to Oliver Kahn, he will say, you hear the numbers um, somewhere between 40 and 50 million euros a year. To sign him, right, and then you have to add the 90 million euros on top of that that Borussia Dortmund want um, as part of the exit clause. That's a lot of money. Um, that's that's twice the salary that Robert Lewandowski is on at the moment. And you know that's that. I think Khan will be very careful and guarded about this one. I think for them, and you see this with the Kingsley Coman deal, right? That was that was announced today. Um, which I think is actually a very interesting contract renewal because there was a a lot of talk that it wouldn't happen um, because he asked for a lot of money. But at the end of the day, he's earning about 17 million euros a season um, before tax, so about 8 to 9 million after tax. And you include bonuses and everything. And the length of the contract, that's about 100 million euros. Try to find a player for that price category. You know, it's very difficult, um, to replace Kingsley Coman, for example, you would have to sign Osman Dembele. His contract, his contract demands are 43 million a year. You're just not going to do that. And so to, to swing back to Erling Haaland, you're in the same category for Bayern. It might be simply cheaper to renew with Robert Lewandowski and go with what you have and just hope that further down the line, you find some guy. Um, who can who can replicate that kind of goal scoring pro pro like' that's that kind of goal scoring or you you make it as part of a collective um because for them that 's a lot of money, and again they have to generate that money themselves and they're losing between three and four million euros a game right now because of closed doors because of the games being played behind closed doors right they can do it financially because they they're filthy rich, but it 's also something that you have in the back of your mind as a club, right? I
1: mean, I would assume you have to. Uh, but Bayern may be less so than other clubs for reasons you've already mentioned. So potential transfers and renewals aside, how are you feeling, or how would you sort of grade the season so far for Bayern Munich? They're top of the table, still live at the Champions League, out of the DFB Pokal. How has this first season uh, been under Julian Nagelsmann?
2: I think they've been very good. And... I think the Champions League in particular, they were excellent. Um, I think then oftentimes that's probably the easiest competition for them to be in. I think they have a lot more trouble in in the Bundesliga than they have in the Champions League at times, which is something of course that the the Bayern Bundesliga is a Bayern-only league brigade doesn't want to hear, but it's true. Um, (laughs) they've, They've have a much easier time there than they have in Germany. And uh I think that's the benchmark for them, right? 18 points out of 18 points uh, in, in the group. Um, we're fantastic in the group as well. And when you, when you look at the troubles that they had um, throughout the season with COVID, <laughs> you know, with the the Joshua Kimmich story, yeah. um, the, the fact that there were so many players unvaccinated and, um, the fact that this is, I i found that actually was a really interesting story. In part of because how many people knew about how that, that, how, which, which players were unvaccinated at Bayern. I found out in, I went back in September, October, right? Uh, there was a brief window where travel was possible and I'm, I, I went because I didn't know when it was possible again. And I spent quite a lot of time with, um, people who covered the club quite closely and spent some time with Bayern Munich in particular. And uh, very quickly, I learned that there was four players who weren't vaccinated and I got the names, but you know, um, releasing health data in Germany is quite tricky. (laughs) So you can have it, but you can't do anything with it. And, um, when Bill released that story about Kimmich. I was like, okay, well, I know who the other three guys are. And I wonder when they're going to release that. It seemed like almost like they were doing it piece by piece, right? Uh, that he was was unvaccinated. Um, I thought that was very interesting how that was handled because it wasn't actually built sport that did it. It was built politics. Because that way, these the sport guys could sort of like wash yeah. their hands clean and wouldn't get in trouble with the club. I thought that was, a, that was actually a really interesting story. Um, it, was, it shows you quite a bit of how the club is covered and how much information every, our journalists have, um, and how little we can actually use sometimes because it's just not something we are allowed to run. Right. And then of course, when one, one person runs and we're like, okay, yeah, this is what it is. This is the actual story. Let's go because it's already out there. It's common public knowledge now. Right. I thought that was really interesting, yeah. but I actually thought that. That had a really good chance of to be torpedoing be, to be Bayern's season. The whole COVID story and the fact that Kimmich A wasn't unvaccinated and had his concerns, right? Um, I need to point out that some of the other guys, Jamal Musiala was one of the players who wasn't, uh, vaccinated, but he, his age category only came up, right? In September. Um, he wasn't actually eligible for vaccination before. And then he said, okay, well, I wait till Christmas in terms of the side effects and I, I, I get, you know, I miss time. So fair enough. I get that. There's nuance to every story. And then, of course, Kimmich gets the, gets the virus just before he decides to get vaccinated. And then he's out for several yeah. weeks. And, um, during that time, Dortmund failed to capitalize. And I think considering that background noise, it's actually been a very good season for Bayern because that was a very difficult period for them. And it was a period where, Dortmund could have maybe gone three, four points clear at the top of the table, and it didn't, which actually shows you quite a lot on how well Julian Nagelsmann handled that situation.
1: Yeah, I I think you've answered it there. But a follow-up question I had, is this, with the kind of continued success that Bayern have had so far this season, is that more of a credit to Julian Nagelsmann and how good of a manager he is that he hasn't had the sort of Nico Kovac situation? Or is it more to you a sign of just how consistent Bayern Munich as a club is when it comes to making these kind of results happen, keeping things consistent, winning silverware, being Bayern Munich? Oh, there's a lot there. Um. <laughs> <laughs> it seems to be how my questions go. There's a lot there. I
2: think Nagelsmann has handled a very very difficult period of transition
1: very well. Does I feel that like sense? you're answering it very diplomatically. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. How actually, let me ask you this then. How different is it for you covering sports and the way you have to report on sports or anything in Canada versus Germany? Because it's interesting that you mentioned the sort of requirements and some of the standards for reporting and it's a thing we bump into a little bit on the total soccer show because we have Mm. ryan and graham who are brits there there are more sort of rules in place about what can and can't be said that sometimes comes across i think for people is like oh you're just trying not to make people mad or not sort of like instill it like create any bad blood between this club and yourself and really it's more of a like no i'm trying not to get sued so how different is it for you reporting in germany versus reporting in canada
2: and the the sort of the sort of bridging all these different yeah. cultures, right? Because like I also do a lot of U.S. Of stuff, and um, it's yeah, in Germany it's quite open. I would say uh, the only thing is um, huh, I'm, go, I'm going I in like depth it. here. Uh, mm-hmm. Journalism standards: you, you often in, interviews in Germany have to be you don't own the interview until the interview has been cleared with the player, person, etc., who you're talking to in Germany, right? So let's say, for example, I do an interview with Oliver Kahn. Um, I interview him and then I write the text. The, the text remains his possession until he clears it. Wow. Right. That said, um, this is happening more and more in Canada too. But when I deal with US clubs, which I often do as well, that's not the case. Unless... It's a German player playing for US club.
1: A lot of calculations, <laughs> which I also yeah. often do,
2: right? Um, so it's it's very interesting because you have to deal with a lot of different press standards. Uh, in my situation, at least, because I I operate full on in Canada, I operate full on in in Germany, and but I wasn't fully in in um, in the US, and I find the press standards are very different. And and generally speaking, when I do an interview, I think it's important that you quote the person the right way it's part of your story and i because an interview isn't is different in that sense right that it's very personal and it's a person trying to tell his story and i'm just there to be the conduit for it and so i think it's actually kind of important that you ensure that what they are saying is the right thing you don't want to backstab someone. So I think in that sense, it actually makes sense to actually work with that person because you don't own that article. It's that person's article. And I just have the privilege to host it on whatever outlet I write on, right? So I actually think that's not a bad policy. And you, you need to work with these people long term. This is the other thing that you have to remember, right? These people um, are some, you know, these contacts that you make, they exist for your entire life. So you can't burn any bridges. Um, as in terms of getting a breaking story, I don't have any personal gains to break that Joshua Kimmich is unvaccinated. Mm-hmm. That's not my story to tell. That's not why I'm in this sport. I have very strong opinions about vaccinations. Um, I, you know, you know, that we've talked about this in private. I believe that if you, if you, if you have the opportunity to get vaccinated, you should. It's not for yourself. It's for everyone around you. But I am not here to tell Joshua Kimmich what he should do with his body. That's not my place. Um, so it's like this is not my story to tell. If Bill release it, of course it becomes part of the general communi- general knowledge. Then I will report on it. So it's it is it yeah. is difficult. You bridging you bridging different cultural no, culture, like different yeah. journalism standards, right? And at, at Bayern Munich, there's a ton of stuff that we know um, that we don't report. Or wait for the right moment, and it's the same with other clubs that I report on. That, um, and I find like the more you know, the less you can report.
1: It does. It definitely does. So it seems, you know, yeah, it seems uh, like caution is your best sort of uh, approach.
2: Yeah, I mean, because it can really backfire, and people take it very personal when you report something and it doesn't quite work out that way. the The Ricardo Pepi one is a good mm-hmm. example. Um, People got really upset because I said, "Okay, according to our information, it's now been confirmed that Wolfsburg are the club that will sign him." I had that from two very good sources that that deal was done, and while at the same time I was stressing on a show that nothing is done until the guy holds mm. up his shirt at a press then, conference. And
1: even then, sometimes that's not even enough. Yeah, and even
2: then. You know, like freaking Ross Barkley crawled out of an MRI machine, you
1: know? (laughs)
2: I do know what I mean. mean, So things change and um, we don't report stuff Mm -hmm. for our personal gain. And when we report something, it's because the information is good. Yeah. Right. And there's a lot of stuff that I know. There's about five or six transfers that I know that will happen that I can't report on for various reasons. And I will not, um, you know, that's just, it's, I would have maybe three or four years ago, but now I can't anymore because it's like you, you, sometimes your information is something that you have to sit on for a while. Like the, the whole Bradley canal going to St. Louis. Um, I've known that for five months. Really? But yeah, that was not a secret. And, um, I said, and you know this, I, I, I know Lutz Van deal very well. I said to Lutz, when, when you guys are close to making this official, I want the first exclusive interview because that was a better story than breaking it. To give you a good did example. That, did
1: that work out for you? Right.
2: Alright. it worked out. It was great. I got a good exclusive interview with them. I did it the night before the announcement and um we were the f- transfer was the first with the first exclusive interview and it was a great article and was very popular. It was well received hundred per cent it was we go.
1: so so we, we've learned Manuel does not want to burn his bridges. I think that is a very good approach, but I'm going to try to get you to do so by asking you more questions about Augsburg now. Uh, because oh uh, I thought your, your conversation <laughs> about Ricardo Pepe's move to Augsburg was really, really interesting on the Gag and Pressing podcast. A thing I thought was yeah. particularly interesting was your conversation about Augsburg itself. And I think – mm. I'll speak for for me, but I think for a lot of folks, we don't really think about the city where the player is going and the sort of culture they're moving to. We just think about, are they going to work on the field? How's that going to fit? And it's interesting when you have a youngster like Ricardo Pepe moving to Germany, to the Bundesliga. I think people think Munich. I think they think Berlin. I don't think they think Augsburg as much. What, what is Augsburg like? What do you think Ricardo Pepe is going to be sort of uh, getting into when he moves there?
2: Yeah, Augsburg is great. It's a 45 minute train ride. <laughs> that, from that's Munich. why it's
1: great. Cause it's, <laughs> it's relatively <laughs> close to Munich. That's all it takes. I got you.
2: <laughs> no, I, I'm, I'm being, I'm being uh-huh. harsh. Um, uh, the, my blue, my blue there heart is shining through here. My 1860 heart. It's a very beautiful city. Um, it's a very old city. It's older than the city of Munich. It's the old, um, capital of the German Reich. When you go all the way back, it's the seat of the Fugger, which used to be a big trading family, right? Which is why the club is called the Fuggerstädter. And um, when you look look that up, I think there was even a computer game where you could be a Fugger trader and and trade things and all that sort of stuff that came out in the 1990s. So it's a very, very old city. And uh, it's very, very medieval. The inner city is very medieval. It's it's beautiful, um, without a doubt. It's very close to Munich. Of course, it gets overshadowed by the city of Munich quite a bit because Munich is now the big capital in in Bavaria, right? And although Augsburg's Augsburg is Swabian. Um, so you know, like across the border, uh in Baden-Württemberg, where they are where they are Baden and Badenzas and Swabians. Um it's it's part of Bavaria. And um sort of the third third city in Bavaria, right? After Munich and Nuremberg. Nuremberg is of course also a very large city. And in terms of, um, FC Augsburg, there's a club that's in its current form, although they're saying they were founded in 1907. In its current form, they've existed since the 1960s. And uh, interestingly enough, they actually hold the record for the biggest attendance in the zweite Bundesliga. Um, this was a game in Munich against 1860, my club, where they, I think they had 90,000 people in the Olympia Stadium for this game. Um, so, you know, there is a bit of history there. Um, but in terms of their yeah. Bundesliga history, they're they're a very new club. Um, they've been they came up and everyone expected to, them to go down, and then every year the, since they've been up and it's been seven years now, everyone expects them to go down, and they just don't want to go away. And <laughs> which is like, it's very funny because I think a lot of fans from other Bundesliga teams sort of see them as the club that we don't need in the league, and you know they'd rather have someone like Hamburg or Schalke. Or we had a Bremen back than Augsburg, but you know, like, like that little, um, like that little village in Asterix Nobelix, they just don't want to wow. go away. And <laughs> they've been around ever since. And you know, that speaks for them because they are well run behind closed, behind, uh, behind closed doors. And, and they have been, have been well run ever since and have done a lot with. What has been limited yeah. financial abilities? Because that seems Let's to Let's talk about a that bit.
1: then. Do you think they do have aspirations for bigger and better things with this signing of Ricardo Pepe? Do you think that signifies more signings to come and a strengthening of the squad? Or, or is this more of a one time investment that they expect to pay off at some point down the road?
2: Yeah, actually, it's really interesting because after the transfer happened um, to Augsburg. I made some calls to people and I was told the reason Augsburg got Ricardo Pepe from Dallas, first of all, because they outbid Wolfsburg by a good eight 8 million euros, that so that helps. Um, but also because unlike Bayern Munich, we were sniffing around until the very end, they were willing to put a lot of clauses into that contract, into that 18 million euro deal. And, um, you know, like a salon clause, future incentives, all that sort of stuff, which Bayern didn't necessarily want to do. And, um, also, of course, Dallas knew that if he ends up with Bayern, that's probably the end of the road for him. You know, where, where do you go after that? To the moon? Like that's it. You know, there is no better destination after that. Whereas if he goes to Augsburg, a future transfer is in the cards, which means Dallas will earn extra incentives, um, on top of what they've already earned. Which is very important, I think, for them and anyone who knows dollars, that's that's a big part of the way they run. And that's you know, one big reason why they got him. Um I think if Ricardo Pepe had been in the equivalent forward and had a Brazilian passport, this transfer never happens.
1: Really? Interesting. Because
2: of because of the because of the investor mm-hmm. David S. Blitzer, right? And I don't want to say David Esplitzer financed this deal directly, um, but I think he's involved in this strategic decision to make this deal happen. In terms of, you know, we want to grow in the US, we want to have a bigger footprint in the US. Augsburg have been very actively looking to. You know, establish themselves in North America. Um, I think there will be a lot more coming in the in the, in in the future in terms of maybe them coming over here for games. Um, maybe will, them do them to establish themselves in terms of having a front office um, like Bayern Frankfurt have in Nuremberg, right, and uh, New York. And so you will see like, things like that. Um, but first and foremost, <laughs> mm-hmm. they have to stay in the league <laughs> because that's not a given at the moment. Because I think anyone who's above them right now is better than they are. Um, every single one of them are better teams than they are. Stuttgart, Wolfsburg, Hertha, Gladbach, you know, are the teams immediately in front of them. They, I think Augsburg are better than Bielefeld and Fürth, but only just. And so they have work to do to, to stay in the league because having the strategic decision to sign someone to grow an American market means nothing if you play in the second division the year after. Yeah, and that's true. Um that's, I think, really, that's, that's going to be, that, that, that makes it interesting what's going to happen for, the, for the rest of, for the rest of this winter, so the rest of January, because they have to do things. They have to strengthen from their midfield. They have to strengthen their wings. They have to maybe, um, Florian Niederlechner has been linked to Chicago Fire, for example. Um, I could see them, you know, maybe moving him on to, to create some room and bringing in some players. I mean, they have to do stuff. They have to, because, you know, Ricardo Pepe is not going to fix their problems
1: overnight. Yeah, so with that in mind, if they needed to make a signing or a couple of signings, they still need to make a couple signings, and they wanted to have more of a f- footprint in the American market, does Ricardo Pepe at the very least like, serve a function within this team as it presently exists? Because I think the reporting has been, it makes sense with the amount spent on him. He is going to get minutes, he's going to get opportunities, and the question then becomes, will they be service? Will he have actual goal-scoring chances? But I think my larger question for you, Manuel, is... Is he was he the right signing? If they wanted to make an impact and bring in an American that they could afford, I doubt they're going to be able to bring in Tyler Adams or Christian Pulisic or something like that. But do you think he was mm-hmm. the right signing for them for trying to make that impact while at the same time getting good results, getting goals, making things happen this season?
2: That's mm-hmm. a fine line between the hype, yeah, the hype train. Uh, their social media has presence has been very active in that regard and. Their Ricardo Pepe's um, agency has also worked really hard to make sure that this is going to be frontline news all over the place by, you know, selectively working with with groups of journalists to ensure that this is, this got a lot of hype. Um, And I think that's a fine line. On the one hand, you you want this sort of hype in order for the transfer to have the sort of impact that you need on the American market. On the other hand, We're talking about a 19 year old guy here who's for the first time in his career has moved to a different country and, um, a very different country. You know, Augsburg is very different than Dallas. And I think for Americans in general, it's pretty easy to get, make the transitions to Germany more so than many other nationalities. That's why we see so many of them in the Bundesliga. But it's still different, you know, for a teenager to be in Germany rather than in Dallas with the family and all that. So I think um, it's a fine line for Augsburg that they're walking there. And um, to also remember that Ricardo Pepe on his own is not going to solve their problems in attack, in midfield, and and defense. And I mean, you see they were heavily linked to uh, Jens Starge, uh, a Danish midfielder. Um, They have been linked to Kevin Vogt, a defender, um, who I heard actually had an offer from the MLS club as well. Um, I found that out today. Um, But that didn't materialize because Hoffenheim didn't want to sell him. But yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what else they're going to do. I I think they need to bring in another serviceman because then Ricardo Pepe on his own is not going to solve the problems. And Ricardo Pepe is not going to score the goals for them unless he's helped up front.
1: Uh, And if they do bring in more people, maybe Blitzer will be involved in some of those acquisitions and fronting some of the money which gets to the idea of investors in a world where 50 plus one reigns supreme. Can you talk or can you explain how private private investment, say, factored into Pepe signing and why it is a source of debate in Germany? Because it's it's a thing that I was very much not familiar with until this transfer and now seems to be at the front and center of discussions about how the Bundesliga is going to expand or uh, find competition for, say, Bayern Munich, something like that.
2: Yeah, it's. Um, I think investors have finally found a loophole in 50 plus one. And it's going to be interesting to see how, the, how that's going to impact further money coming to Germany down the road. I know that American investors have been eyeballing the Bundesliga for a long time because it seemed to be the one league that they really couldn't get their foot in the door, right? You see a lot of money going into Italy at the moment from American investors. Um, that's not quite the case yet in Germany. And Augsburg, together with Hertha Berlin, where where something similar is going on um, with a German investor in this case, um, have sort of offered the blueprint of how you can keep 50 plus one, but also opening the doors to investors. And the principle is quite simple. Um, at the base of every club in Germany is the so-called geta- Eigendragnerverein, the membership club, right? The membership club like you have in Spain and in a lot of South American countries. Um, no one can buy any shares in that. So what every club in Germany has done, or most clubs, Schalke is an exception of this rule, they have a either a chair company, a limited chair company, Or um, a joint stock company, or any kind of like financial structure that has been sort of outsourced, right? And that club owns and operates the football operations of the first team, sometimes the first team, the second team, and uh, some of the youth teams um, to a certain level, usually U19. Um, And that that operation is free to sell shares, right? Um, In Augsburg's case, 99.5 um, percent of those shares are owned by Klaus um, Klaus Holman, who is the who is the president, was also the president of the club, um, and he has then sold um, through his holding company 45 percent of his shares to the Blitzer. Um, the reason why 50 plus one remains intact is is because those are not voting shares. 50 plus one of the voting shares remain with the Eigentragner Verein. So the membership club still sends, um, let's say you have a board of 10 people. There will be six, six members of the board will still be voted in by the membership club. So 50 plus one remains intact, but, uh, someone can still own a significant percentage of the football operations of that club, right? And Hertha sort of did this. Well, Hertha technically did it second. First, the first team to do this was 1860 with Hassan Ismek And it wasn't really a success, um, because the investor was very difficult to deal with. Um, and 1860 had to use 50 plus one many times to sort of torpedo ideas by the investor. The second club to do it with a bit more success has been Hertha with Finhorst, um, who has pumped 350 million euros in the club and owns 60% of the the operations that run the football operations, right? And so it looks like um, Augsburg are going down a similar path. And I'm um, now hearing rumbling that there's there's a few other Bundesliga teams. Yeah, Max Eber, for example, from Borussia Mönchengladbach, has said that they are looking for investors as well. So it looks like this is sort of this sort of structures open the doors to keep 50 plus one intact on paper. To ensure that the the fans have still the majority of the voting share, but at the same time, investors can come in and say, I want to buy 60% of your club.
1: And then it stands to reason the fans theoretically theoretically can still oppose things that are happening, can still vote things down. It just requires all of them to be together versus if you have uh, basically the rich people saying this is how we want it to be. It stands to reason you're going to get a few people on your side and you'll be able to push it through. Is that roughly how it would work? Okay.
2: In theory, at the end of the day, the in German we have a saying that "Zahl schafft an." The person who pays makes the decisions, and I personally believe in that. I think in theory, yes, the fans still have the the power to veto certain things, like a name change, um, like a stadium move, um, things like the Super League, right? Sort of those sort of things would never happen in German football, even with this sort of structure in place. But at the end of the day, if you American investor wants the club to pay twenty million dollars for an American nineteen year old American striker, it will do it because that's where the money is from. I think
1: I just assumed that it would be unpopular because it does sort of get around fifty plus one. But is it? more accepted because it's seen as a way to combat, say, Bayern Munich's dominance or even some of the larger clubs who don't have to worry about things like Augsburg does or Hertha uh, certainly has it in the past? Like, is it a more popularly held thing because it allows theoretically for greater competition? I think
2: Augsburg are very lucky that uh, stadiums are close to fans at the moment. Um, I think there, were, there is a lot of debate on social media. Uh, There's a lot of debate on various forums, but you're not seeing the science in stadiums because COVID yeah. is shutting the fans out. And that, I think, might be for some teams an opportune time to bring this sort of thing in and, um, you know, change the structure. Because you're not going to see tennis balls flying on the pitch right now, are you? If you do,
1: it's it's, something weird has happened. Yes, I take your point. Yeah.
2: Yeah. You know, like the tennis ball protests, of course, was with the Monday night games in German football that were heavily opposed by fans and um, eventually forced the league to actually cancel them because they were so heavily opposed. Because then fans started throwing tennis balls onto the field for every game. Funny protest, really really creative. I thought it was hilarious. But you're not going to see that right now. You're not going to see fan protests because there are no fans. And... Um The cynic in me is, is saying this is the greatest time huh. for any executive to make unpopular decisions because who's going to oppose you?
1: FX is welcome to Wrexham, all new Thursdays on FX, stream on Hulu. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Well, luckily, with 24 7 US based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer, if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Well, let me take it this direction then. Uh, In terms of popular decisions, I would would say it stands to reason that Freiburg and Hoffenheim are both fairly popular with their supporter groups. Uh, Which of those two teams has been the bigger surprise for you, given where they are in the table at time of recording? So
2: we actually spend quite a bit of time talking um, about Freiburg throughout the year because um, I, I think it's just remarkable what they do every year. And uh, Christian Streich is a gem of a head coach. Uh, I think he is an institution in German football, and he makes everything in German football better. Um, his 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 existence alone, and his the fact that he speaks out on cultural and political important things. Um, just make him a very important person, which also means this club gets a lot more attention um, at times. And I feel bad for, for Hoffenheim because we haven't really talked much about them as a result. And here they are silently in third place, you know, um, on Champions League course with Sebastian Hoeneß in charge, doing brilliant things week in week out. And it's, <laughs> Almost getting ignored for it and maybe for them that's a great place to be at because you know with less attention no one is really paying too much attention to them but or like you know gives them gives them the ability to do whatever they want to do but yeah i think how hoffenheim are right now i think that's that's incredible they have done an amazing job at that club and they could be and i mean they've been in the champions league before right um, and I think they're silently pushing for that spot. That said, you know, I, I mentioned and alluded to it. From third to all the way down to ninth, all those teams are Champions League contenders, in yeah, my opinion.
1: Fairly, fairly open table, uh, with a few exceptions. Uh, Griffith Firth, I would say not in the Champions League spots, but some other no. clubs are. Uh, what are Hoffenheim doing? Uh, I watched them. That's the first time I've watched them. i hold my hands up and say I, I had not watched them until this weekend when they played Augsburg, and I was very much paying attention to Augsburg in that one, less so Hoffenheim. Uh, but what are sort of the hallmarks of their style? What are they doing to get to the place they are, and how do they maintain that? to finish in the Champions League spots at the end of the season?
2: Yeah, I think that that's going to be the difficult task, right, to maintain it. And um, they've been playing a very progressive um, 3-1-4-2 um, formation. Ilas Bebo has been excellent. They don't really have that typical number nine, right? And they have, to, they have done a lot of it without uh, Kramaric being in his best form either. And um, Andre Kramaric, of course, player who who has been linked to various bigger teams throughout throughout his time in Hoffenheim. And um, so they have been having this fantastic run um, without him being in his best form. And, um, yeah, Ilis Bebo has been one to watch. um, Wonderful player, really fast. Um, Giorgino rutt is another one. Munas Dabur, you know, it's a very progressive attacking style of of football. And I think that's really... um, What they have done well, they just, Sebastian Hoeneß has an idea. He executes it and he sticks to those principles. And, um, there's this wonderful German word that we say, Handschrift. You know, you can see handwriting. You can see his handwriting all over this team. Um, in the same way that you saw it when he was in charge of Bayern Munich 2, where he got promoted to the dritte Liga, right? The third division in German football. And um, you see it here as well. There's a clear handwriting. There's a clear idea of how he wants to have his team play football. and He sticks to it no matter what your opponent is. And I think Sebastian Hoeneß is a coach to watch in German football because obviously um, other people will notice that he has a clear idea of how to play and he, that he sticks to these principles and that he, despite um, having faced some obstacles in his first season, has made this club better. And
1: do you feel like Chris Richards deserves all of the credit for where they are or just most of all of the credit for where they are? <laughs> I don't I don't I don't understand. That's a very serious question. It's <laughs> a very serious question and is not at all uh, my red, white and blue glasses that I'm asking from.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Um, there yes, we go. He deserves you. all the uh, I got
1: that on record. I do appreciate that. Since I've taken us the American route, let's talk about a few other clubs. Let's go to Wolfsburg for a moment. There is no Ricardo Pepe. There is still John Brooks. Mm-mm. I like broad question. What's going on with John Brooks, Manuel? Let's talk about it. Is he going to renew? Is he going to be sold? Is he going to be allowed to leave? Any ideas what maybe has gone on there as to having in his coaches? So I guess like the, the bad books for a while, it seems like he's back. He plays this weekend. But I do not fully understand anything that is happening with John Brooks. So I leave it to you to help me make sense of it. Slash make sense of it entirely.
2: I don't understand anything Double. that's happening with Wall right. period. All
1: right. <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, I have heard uh, rumors mm. that Brooks could come to MLS. Interesting.
1: Uh, any club in particular? Kof St. Louis, Kof
2: no. Okay. No, I haven't heard those details. Um you know, this is mm-hmm. something that I'm working on and it's very, very loose. So don't <laughs> really me say Manuel Fietz said he's coming to like like MLS. It's like, no, it's, mm-hmm. it's it's still early stages. But um Yeah, Wolfsburg is just such an interesting club just in general because they seem to have done everything right and then um Schmattge- the sporting mm-hmm. the director of sport, not sporting director, the sporting director is Marcel Schaefer, of course, who has a US pass as well by having played for the Tampa Bay Rowdies. Um, Schmattke, this was Schmattke's decision, um, sort of lets Glasner go to Frankfurt and replaces him with Mark van Bommel. And that was a terrible decision. And then he replaces van Bommel with Florian Kofeld. And I think that's a terrible decision as well because Kofeld has. I don't understand why clubs are doing, making the same mistake. Why are they looking at a coach who hasn't worked out previously at another club and bring him in anyways, thinking that this time it will be better? I um, have some issues with the lack of creativity when it comes to German executives making decisions about coaching positions. I think German teams can do a lot better, um, period. And I just don't understand what's happening with that because you're talking about a club in Wolfsburg that a, time, a few years ago had the same... Budget is Atletico Madrid. And, you know, they're not anywhere near. No, no they're not. (laughs) They should be though, but when you look at up and down that squad, that's a really good team. It's a very good team. And they are so far below their potential. It's shocking. It's absolutely shocking. And it's so very frustrating because you just want them to do well and you want them to use their potential. But then you have decision makers bringing in someone like Kofeld. And I just don't understand. Like go and think outside the box. Why not bring in a foreigner? Bring in a fresh set of ideas to this. And, um, maybe bring in someone who's actually capable of playing the so- same sort of football that Glasner has last year, which obviously worked. And yeah, it's, it's very frustrating when you see it. I, I just. It just shows to me that they have a very good eye for talent, but a very bad eye when it comes to making front office decisions and who to put in charge of managing the talent. And it's
1: very strange to look at the table and see that it's uh, Wolfsburg 14th on 20 points, of Berlin one point ahead of them, and then Borussia Mönchengladbach one point ahead of them. I did not have those three clubs as 12th, 13th, and 14th. If you were choosing Manuel, which club would you of those 3 would you least want to play for? Who do you feel like is going to have a a rough end of the season versus who might be able to turn it around and get some wins here and there? Because looking at Wolfsburg, I think they have not won a competitive game since November 6th. They're winless in their last 10 competitive games. They got a club friendly win in the break over Paderborn. I'm sure that will make all the difference, but mm. it feels like Wolfsburg would be the answer, but could be Gladbach, could be Hertha. I ask you Manuel, which one would you least want to play for right now?
2: Well, Gladbach will definitely lose the next game now yep. that they've beat that Bayern.
1: <laughs> That's just how the league works. <laughs> All right. So they're in some trouble.
2: And there's actually a good, ch- there's a good chance they're going to lose that next mm-hmm. game because it's Leverkusen, who I actually think at times have been very attractive to watch. And, um, yeah, there's a lot of bad things happening in Gladbach. The, 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 the whole Matthias Ginter and Dennis Zakaria. There, there was talk today that Zakaria, um, is in talks with mm-hmm. Manchester United potentially go there it's heavily been has been linked to Borussia Dortmund as well Um, Matthias Ginter has been linked to Inter Milan and there's some talk that Gladbach might sell them both now for a low price to just get them out of the squad because they don't want to renew right um that's not good and the whole situation with Adi Hutter, he was the wrong coach just was, so was not the right right replacement for for Rose, and um, I think in Gladbach too, they have to stick with Adi Hutter because COVID means that they can't they can't finance sacking him because they would have to pay him out. Which of course then leads to the fact that Abel has recently spoken about bringing in ah. investors, right?
1: Okay, it all connects. Now I get it. All right, so. Yeah. We, we'll see. If they were to change it up, though, if they were to have a manager change at Wolfsburg again or at Gladbach or even at Hertha, the, the next question for me is, uh, do you think people are going to take a look at Jesse Marsh uh, in the Buddhist League or do you feel like he has to go elsewhere to sort of rebuild that reputation? Because it does feel, as you said, I think earlier, that it was... Like right club, right situation, but like wrong time effectively. Uh, I think I'm, I'm misquoting you. Uh, right person at the right club at the wrong time is what I wrote down. Uh, but, but it yes. still did not go well. It's still an American. And I do feel like there is sometimes that stigma about American coaches. Uh, do you think that mm-hmm. Bundesliga clubs might take a, a run at Jesse Marsh or do you think he's going to be taking an assistant gig somewhere else before that happens?
2: I think he would have been a great, um, choice for, um, for Frankfurt. Of course, and, you know, now that they have chosen Glasner, um, it's hard to argue that they made a the wrong decision. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, there he was in talks mm-hmm. there as well. And then he himself pushed for the Leipzig move is my understanding, at least. And, um, you know, maybe that was just the wrong thing to do because filling in Nagelsmann's shoes was always going to be difficult and aguesbon has played such a different style um than what is usually expected from from red bull teams right that trying to reimpose yeah. the red bulls the pure red bull style of football that marsh stands for onto a team that has played very differently the, the two years before was always going to be very hard whereas in frankfurt or maybe even gladbach it would have been easier to do that in some ways because they had that handwriting all over them already. And yeah, you know, maybe Marsh followed Rose in Salzburg. Maybe it would have been easier for him to follow Rose in Gladbach. You know, to, to, because it's simil- more, it was more similar of a style of play to what the players were used to. I personally would give him another chance. Um, what maybe, <laughs> maybe plays into Marsh's hand when it comes to German football is that. Um, A lot of German executives are not creative enough to go for someone else. So
1: he'll he'll fall back into a gig. Do you feel like there's any stigma from the Red Bull connection that is, is there a chance he's seen as sort of a he functions in that Red Bull system, but out of that system, he might not. Or if you ask him to do things differently, he might not work. Do you feel like there's any sort of issue there or mostly is it just, yeah, he's a coach who didn't have that much success so far. So let's see what else is out there.
2: I mean, everyone is kind of playing that mm-hmm. style of football, anyways. Now, or a lot of teams are, and um you know that really, really attacking-minded counter-pressing style of football is someone that everyone is trying to replicate. I mean, I, I told you earlier about Bradley Cannell, and they pointed that out. Bradley Cannell, of course, worked in, in the Red Bull, um in the Red Bull system for years as well, and so a lot of people are trying to play that sort of football. And I think because of that, that's probably gonna play into his hands, to be honest. Um that German teams like to play that really high risk attacking style of football and um pay less attention maybe to defensive work. Um which is one of the issues that Marsh had in Salzburg already and it really came to the forefront in, in Leipzig didn't it? So maybe um it will be something that actually will play into his hands and give him another opportunity in Germany.
1: But in his absence, Domenico Tedesco has come in. Uh, Leipzig now ninth in the table. They did get a win this weekend. How much do you feel like has changed at Leipzig under Tedesco? Do you think he has done a good job of stabilizing so far? Do you think we'll see him there in the longer term or is he more of a short-term appointment? I think his gig, as I saw at his contract, goes until June of 2023, which I wouldn't say is the longest-term appointment.
2: mm no, it's not. And um, I got called out this week because I suggested that desko is a defensive-only coach. Yeah, he played a more attacking, progressive style of football um, during his time in Moscow. Fair enough. But we just didn't see that in Germany, did we? And it's no offense to the the, the Russian Premier League. It's a very different league than the Bundesliga. Bundesliga. And um, so I do think he's a defensive stability guy first and um, wants the defensive foundation to be be a big part of his attacking style game and i think the game against mines was excellent um the, there was a couple guys that really stood out for me and that was uh, Soboslai and uh, Andre Silva and and Kunku of course has always been good right all season long and for me Though the fact that Sobo's and Silver got clicking, that's very good news for Leipzig because they are two guys who they spent significant money on and were supposed to be a key part of this team going forward. And they need to click because I think it, they paid about 50 million euros for them together, right? And that's a big, that's a lot of money. And so that needs to work out. And I think if he can get those two going and keep Ninkunku hot and find the defensive stability. And I really like the fact that he uh, started Guardiola and Sima Khan in defense, who I actually thought were two very excellent signings we um, were going to bring a lot of joy to Leipzig fans down the road. We just haven't seen it yet because Marsh mm-hmm. just couldn't get them going. And then uh, Tedesco didn't have made the time yet to get them going. But I, I think in terms of quality, um, I believe that Leipzig will finish in the top four.
1: And they are. I'm not sure how far off that they are right now, but that
2: yeah, it's not much it does feel points. like
1: with the talent they have, the depth they have, uh, they'll be able to sort of string those results together to get at the very least into that conversation. Mm. Do you envision them doing much business in January to kind of add to the squad and and just get them a little bit more depth than they currently have, or do you feel like they're going to kind of stick with the signings they had this summer and try to get the team to gel around Tedesco and then see what happens maybe in the summer?
2: I think they don't need to do much, to be honest. And I don't think they will. Um, They have to just get the guys that they have right now, um, play consistent football, get the signings that they made in the summer, um, consistently integrated into the squad. I think that there's a lot of work there already. and um, Yeah, I think that is the, the number one objective for for uh, Tedesco it's going to be interesting to see what they're going to do with Caden Clark I think the rumor now and um, what's been suggested to me is that he's heading back to New York for at least till the summer um, to, to get playing time rather than sitting on the bench in Leipzig which actually makes a lot of sense to me because the, the squad is there is very deep and um, I think for them with them not being in the most comfortable position at the moment I don't know how much time he's, whether he's going to get the playing time that he needs to develop further, right? I think he's going to probably get that more under Struber in, in, at New York than he's going to get at Leipzig. Um, I think that it's going to be interesting to see if that's actually going to happen, but it, it sounds like he's going back on loan. Um, and then of course, you know, they're still very deep. Uh, Sydney Rebiger, he made his debut as a 16 year old for them, um, last match day. Seems like a very good talent. So yeah. I think uh, Tedesco has a lot of work to do with the players that he has in, in his disposition. So I think rather than actually adding, they might send some of the guys who are very talented out on loan to ensure that when they come back next summer... Um, they come into a situation that is maybe a bit more comfortable. Uh,
1: We have gone long, as we tend to do. Manuel, I appreciate uh, your being so (laughs) generous with your time. I have a couple more questions. I will try to get through them quickly so that we don't have to take up too much more of your day. I did want to ask about Stuttgart, as long as we're talking about American managers. Uh, Pellegrino, Matarazzo, still there. Stuttgart finished ninth last season, 45 points, a goal difference of plus one. This season, they're 15th just ahead of Augsburg for the relegation playoff spot. They've taken 18 points from 17 games. Their numbers are not massively different, as I could tell from this time last season. What do you think is the reason for their inability to match last season's standard in terms of where they were in the table in terms of survival comfort? Uh, Ninth does not feel as attainable. That said, as we've talked about a couple different points, the table is more open than it might suggest. So maybe they're, they're going to be... Comfortably mid table, maybe they end up in a relegation battle. But what do you think will make the difference for Stuttgart? Why haven't they been able been able to match that sort of output from last year?
2: Um. Yeah, Sasha Kalichet was injured for a long time. He's coming back now, right? And they're going to slowly integrate him into the side. That's that's a that's like a new signing for them, and um, you know, that a player who has been very very important for for them. Um, and I think. You have to remember how many injury problems Stuttgart had at the first half of the year. And then COVID on top of that, right? You already have a ton of injury problems. And then at times you're missing six, seven guys with COVID. That's really difficult to navigate for for a club like Stuttgart. And I think, honestly, I don't think they're going to be in trouble. I, don't, I just don't see it. I just think that they're going to be the sort of team that, okay, now the guys are coming back. Um, everyone is vaccinated now. Um, they had the virus. They're going to a lot of guys. A lot of people in Germany are getting their boosters. Fifty so percent of the population is boosted, right? So you're not going to miss as much time anymore at this stage. And I think that's going to help them in the second half of the season. Um, they essentially just need to replicate what they did in the first year, where they had all this first half of the season, where they had all these issues, and they're going to be fine, right? Silas Katombo mvumbu is coming back as well. Uh, you know, we, we talked about him a little bit the last time. He was known under a different name previously, but um, there was issues, of course, with his agents and his passport and, and so on. He's, he's a great player. And um, he's coming back as well. So I think when, when all their players return and once they get into full fitness and Kalajic starts clicking again, I think they will be just fine. And it's interesting too, because there is no, there is no talk about Pellegrino Matarazzo being in trouble as well. There's nothing. It's quiet. It's very quiet um around him which in of course indicates to me that the the decision makers at Stuttgart are very much aware of the difficulties he's been dealing with and therefore are just leaving him alone to do his thing um, because they have the confidence to know that he's going to turn right, things around. All
1: right, so we can feel better about at least one American in the Bundesliga. Uh, I would feel better about the Bundesliga if FC St. Pauli uh, were to return. They are currently top of the Zweite Bundesliga. Uh, 18 games into the season, they are, I think, on top by one point ahead of Darmstadt and just ahead of Hamburg as well. Do you think we'll see everyone's favorite punk rock club back in the top flight next season, Manuel? Oh, I mean that would be fun. Maybe both Hamburg teams will go up. Awesome, I would enjoy a Hamburg derby. So, but if I were to, if you were betting money on one club to to get promoted, would it be FC Saint Pauli or would it be somebody else?
2: Oh my God, that's why the Bundesliga really? is so unpredictable. Um, I think it's the most difficult second division in the world in terms of where you're going to end up at the end of the season, um, because from top to bottom there, it's the the gap, the financial gap is almost nil. Um, it's super competitive in the sense that everyone has the same spending power, which makes it, of course, a really interesting league to follow, right? Because you don't know what's going to happen. Uh, everyone plays against prom- uh, get for promotion and relegation at the same time. You can literally be in the top three one one year and then fighting against relegation next year. It's so tight. So with that in mind, um, we're only at the halfway point. You need sixty points to go up. That's sort of been the benchmark. Um, St. So Pauli have thirty six. You know, so you can do the math. Um, I think that Hamburg and Schalke are going to push hard. Hamburg need to go up. I mean, it's it's they at a point now where they've been down there for so long that. If they don't do it soon, it's going to be a really big issue for them. So they're going to push hard to go up. Same with Schalke. Schalke have so many financial problems that for them to not go up this year, it would actually really, really hurt them. And, um, so those two teams will push, um, St. Pauli all the way. I mean, in an ideal world, in an ideal world, you will have two of Hamburg, Schalke and Bremen go up. We need those blue chip clubs back in the Bundesliga, and that's just the bottom line. You know, we need less Fürth's, Augsburg's, and Bielefelds in the Bundesliga, more Hamburgs, um, Bremens, and uh, Schalke's, and even Nuremberg's in the league, because they have the big stadiums, they have the big big fan attendance, and they bring the television money. And um, you know, as harsh as that sounds, they are the they are Germany's blue chip clubs, and they've just been so poorly run for so long that we want to have them up. That said, I exclude St. Pauli from that conversation because St. Pauli is in Hamburg. Yeah. You know, Hamburg is Germany's second largest city. It's, um, together with Munich, the richest city in, in Germany. And, um, having a team in Hamburg, whether it's HSV or St. Pauli doesn't really matter as long as there is a team from Hamburg in yeah. the league, if that makes sense. So, and uh, yeah, St. Pauli are great. I mean, they're right downtown, um, on the Reeperbahn. Hamburg Hamburg SV, their stadium is a little bit further out. Um, but yeah, St. Pauli would be. I mean, we would all love it, right? Um, to see yep. them in the league. And I think it would be even better to have both Haas, and St. Pauli in the league. Um, I think the, the big cities, the league would actually be better served if, um, the big cities had more than one team. Um, and I'm not saying that because mm-hmm. I'm an 1860 fan, but I think the league, um, was a better place when we had more derbies, inner city derbies. And I mean, you include Schalke in that too, because that would bring you back to Dortmund Schalke derby as well, right? um the league is a better place yeah. when you have um two teams in Berlin two teams in Hamburg two teams in um in Munich and uh, a couple of big teams in the Ruhrport that you know produce these big matches week in and week out
1: so that always draws attention and then so too do signings my final question for you right now I believe I'm correct in saying that Ricardo Pepe is far and away the most expensive signing in the Bundesliga in the January window I think in terms of Incoming signings, uh, Hugo C.K. signing for Freiburg for about $5 million is the closest to Pepe. How much do you think that will change? Do you think Pepe stays the most expensive acquisition in January? Do you think someone else will rival him? Do you think one of the larger clubs needs to strengthen in that way? Do you think he stays top five? I'm wondering how much you think there will be business done in January from the Bundesliga.
2: Yeah, I don't. I mean, if I would put money down, I think Ricardo Pepe could, has the hmm. chance to be the biggest. And, um, you know, there is rumors about Sejino Des coming maybe to Germany. Mm. I don't know. Um, You're I not do it. <laughs> yeah. Barcelona asking, for, um, Barcelona asking for a lot of money and he hasn't really shown to any club who's interested in why they should spend a lot of money on him. Um, so th- that is of course an, a big issue, right? If you if you if you are a team that wants to um sell and um you the, the asset that you have has dropped significantly in um in market value then yeah, yeah fair. that's an issue. Um, I don't know it's gonna be a, I, I, I can I could see Pepe being the biggest transfer for any club um this this winter uh, in the Bundesliga. I mean maybe a couple outgoing guys and then we'll see what that will do. Um you know there has been some rumors about Mohamed Ali Cho going to Leipzig. Um from from oh, I'm gonna butcher my French here Angers to uh SEO Angers to, to Leipzig and his market value is around twelve million euros. So we'll see whether he's he's actually gonna make the move and how much that's going to be but is that going to be more than, than what Pepe cost? Hmm, maybe. And then um, Frankfurt are very, very, very interested in Josef Demir, the Austrian, who was on loan at Barcelona. And then Barcelona couldn't find the money to make that deal permanent. And they had to send it back. Um, so it would be interesting to see how much Frankfurt are willing to spend for that. But again, is that going to be more than Pepe? Hmm, I don't know. I don't think so. So he has a good chance of being the most expensive there we go. All right. Well, if
1: there were to be some business done, I'm I'm assuming people can find it on Transfermarkt, which is where uh Manuel spends most yeah. of his time, but also check out the Gig and Pressing podcast as well. Manuel, thank you so much for taking so long to talk uh, all things Bundesliga with me today.
2: Oh, it's so much fun. I always enjoy uh, it. And listeners, thanks so much
1: for listening. I can't wait for you all to listen to another episode with me and Manuel and more episodes with me and the rest of the crew. We'll be back tomorrow doing some Lister questions. But for now, thank you again for listening. And we'll talk to you again very soon. Cheers.